use gospel together, um, which we started just after Easter. It feels a very long time ago now. And uh, even in that long time, we have really barely scratched the surface of this astonishing book, one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, we've been trying to um, uncover a little bit of this Jesus, Jesus revealed uh, in the words of Matthew. I suppose a reminder to us that all the things that maybe we thought that we knew about Jesus are not always absolutely borne out by the Gospels. But more than that, actually, that there is so much more to Jesus to discover and uncover and to be revealed to us. Matthew's Gospel finishes with marching orders, I guess is the best way to describe it. It finishes, in some ways, the same way that the Mission Impossible films and TV series begin this is your mission, should you choose to accept it. Thankfully, nothing self-destructs in this case. But still, these are words of instruction. Jesus tells his disciples as they meet together, um, you are to go and to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach. They're strong words. They're clear words. And they're given great significance by the fact that they're given on a mountain. Now, Matthew's gospel, and actually in the Bible as a whole, mountains have real significance. Matthew picks up on the fact that back in the Old Testament, the mountain is where Moses and then Elijah become two of the only human beings to have ever lived to have some sort of almost face-to-face encounter with the God whom we know created all things, the God of gods, King of kings. And Moses meets God on the mountain as he's given the Ten Commandments. Elijah meets God on the mountain, has to be hidden in the cleft of a rock as God's presence uh, walks by. And Matthew picks up on this and says, actually, look what happens with Jesus. Jesus goes up on the mountain in the Mount of Transfiguration, and he meets with, yes, Moses and Elijah. And this time they're meeting with Jesus up on the mountain, this sense of the presence of God right there with them as Jesus is transfigured, shown to be who he really is. His glory, if you like, is, yes, revealed. And now Jesus calls his disciples to meet with him on the mountain. Moses called to meet with God, Elijah called to meet with God, then the two of them called to meet with Jesus. Now Jesus goes up on the mountain and calls his disciples to meet with him. Something significant is happening here. They aren't simply having a a team meeting, a company meeting. Here's the instructions for the year, here's your aims for the next 12 months. This is a meeting of huge significance. And of course, if we're people who are aiming to follow Jesus, if we're people who are calling ourselves Christians, we want to take those seriously. We want to say, well, okay, if these are my instructions, if these are my marching orders, if this is my mission, should I choose to accept it, then what am I meant to be doing? And we're told, well, we're meant to be making disciples. We're meant to be baptizing. We're meant to be teaching. The problem is this, it seems to me, that religion thrives on instruction but dies because of failure religion thrives on instruction you you won't find religion anywhere in the world anywhere in history that doesn't have a vast number of vast number of instructions here is your mission this is what you're meant to be doing this is what being a good religious person looks like this is how to do good this is how to be good this is how to make it with god they thrive on instructions, sometimes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of instructions and rules. But they die on failure. 
because those instructions are incredibly hard to keep up. Pick any instruction anywhere in any of religion, and you'll find that they are incredibly hard to keep for very long. And so religion tends to make us into failures. We walk through our lives always realizing that we're never quite up to the mark. We can never be the people that we'd like to be. And these instructions simply become a heavy weight weighing us down. It's why nobody likes to do talks on evangelism, telling other people the good news. Because the moment you start talking about making disciples and teaching people and baptizing people, there is this just weight of guilt that lands on people's shoulders. I've done talks on evangelism, and you can see the moment you say that's what you're going to talk about, there is this slump collectively around the room as people think, yeah, I'm rubbish at that. Gosh, I avoid talking about my faith. I don't mention to people that I go to church on a Sunday. I mean, I've got, I haven't got that choice, ladies and gentlemen. Um, people work out that I'm in church on a Sunday. But apart from that, in general, we avoid it. We're embarrassed of it. We're fearful of what people will think of us. We don't want to seem geeks. We don't want to seem weird. We don't want, we don't want to seem extremists. Religion has a bad name. This is the stuff of guilt and of failure. But it seems to me that right at the heart of the Christian faith is the antidote to religion which is that we're not meant to be living out of a sense of guilt, out of a sense of duty or of ought, that the Christian faith is not about the what and the how, it's all about the why and the who. It's not about the what, what should I be doing, and the how, how should I be doing it, and if I manage the what and the how, will God be happy with me? It's meant instead to be about the why. Why is life shaped like this? Why am I called to be like this? And most of all, about the who. And actually, if we think about these instructions, that begins to become clear. Because if we're called to make disciples, to make a disciple is to call people to follow a someone, not a something. You're not a disciple of a set of rules. You're a disciple of someone. That's what a disciple means. It means a learner from someone. If, if you, in those days, if you said, I'm a disciple, they wouldn't say, oh, how are you doing following the rules? The next question would be, of whom? Make disciples of all nations is all about the who. Who are you making disciples of? Baptizing. Well, you don't just baptize in a sort of uh, lack of context and a just sort of theoretical way. You baptize into the name of someone. The name of the who, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when you teach, you don't just teach a set of rules. You teach them to obey everything Jesus says, I have commanded you. The Christian faith isn't simply about the what and the how. It's about the why and the who. In other words, even here, right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, even when we get something called the Great Commission, even when we get what feels like the start of a Mission Impossible movie with your mission, should you choose to accept it, it's still all about Jesus. It's all about this Jesus, who Matthew has spent the whole of his gospel, the previous 27 and a half chapters, or 28, really, chapters, revealing to us. It's all about him. And when we get our heads and our hearts around who this Jesus really is, then these instructions not only make sense they become not a heavy weight to drag us down, but rocket fuel for a life of purpose and of meaning. And yes, actually, of, in Jesus' terms, success. So who is this Jesus that Matthew re reveals to us? 
Well, it seems to me that right in these last few words, Matthew has taken threads from right the way through his gospel, right the way through from the first chapter of Matthew, and he's pulled them all the way through his gospel and landed them right here in these last few words. And the first thing that he reveals to us about Jesus that's revealed all the way through the chapters that have gone before is that this Jesus is one who has authority. He's the rightful king. Verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now actually we should, I guess, guess that there's going to be something about authority. They're up on a mountain after all, and as I've already said, the Old Testament is full of meetings with God up on mountains. But it should also make sense to us because right back at the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, and particularly that we think of as the Christmas story, the visiting of the wise people, the magi, the encounter with Herod, uh, the rescue, the escape into Egypt, and the return. It's all about who's got authority. These magi come and visit King Herod. King Herod is the tyrant of his times. King Herod is a puppet of the great empire of Rome. If you want to know where authority lies, well, there you have it. It lies with the emperor. It lies with his puppet, King Herod. And right into the midst of this, a usurper. Well, actually, the opposite of a usurper, the rightful king, is born, according to Matthew. And then all the way through, you've got this question of, is he really king? Has he really got authority? Is he really got the right to go up against the empire, against the religious authorities, against all the powers and authorities that are there? And Matthew then lays it out for us in chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted by Satan, the enemy. And the thing that he is most tempted by is this question of authority. Do you remember that the final pair of temptations are all to do with that? Verse 8 of chapter 4. Again, the devil took Jesus up to a very high mountain. There's the mountain again. Matthew's not stupid. He knows exactly what he's doing right in this gospel. He's going to pull through themes. And our problem is, of course, that we read it in little chunks. So we're probably forgetting what happened, you know, three months ago in our readings. It's really worth spending, it would take you no more than an hour, maybe a couple of hours if, if you read nice and slowly, to read from the beginning of Matthew's gospel to the end. And you'll see these themes coming back and again. The devil takes Jesus up to a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And the devil says to him, all this I will give you, he says, if you will bow down and worship me. It's all about authority. The devil's saying to Jesus, if you want this authority, if you're really the king, here's a shortcut. Now, forget all this business of, you know, having to die and rise again and all of that. Forget that. Here's a really easy way. All you've got to do is worship me, and I'll give you authority. But, of course, what Jesus knew, and what we know, now know, having read Matthew's gospel, is that the problem with the authority he was being offered was that it was actually an illusion. It was a hoax. Because it wouldn't have been true authority. It would have been authority over the nations of the world, but it would have still been authority under the boot of a tyrant. And that tyrant would have been God's enemy and the final enemy of all, the enemy of death itself. It's an interesting one, isn't it? When you look at the world, when you look at the most powerful leaders in our world, and we've had quite a lot of them on our screens over the last few days, there is one thing that pulls the rug out, of, out from underneath the feet of even the cruelest, most powerful, most dictatorial monarch or ruler. 
and that is death. One out of one people die. Even the most astonishingly powerful tyrants of our time, Stalin or Mao or Hitler, die. Their rule comes to an end. Their reign has a full stop, an underline, a new paragraph. It's over, done, finished. Even the most powerful human being cannot come out from underneath the foot of the tyrant of death. Well, actually, one could. Because the authority that Jesus is now able to speak about at the end of Matthew's Gospel comes as he has gone through even death itself. Because even death could not hold him. Even death could not rule over him. Even death could not have the final say. Death is dead. Death is defeated. Death's rule is done. Jesus has defeated it. And so he's able to say, without any equivocation, without holding anything back, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is the rightful king, is truly king of all. But secondly, what we find is that this king of all is also present with us. He's not a distant king. He's not a far-off king. This isn't some sort of theoretical idea or some distant being in some other dimension. This is the one who says, the end of verse 20, the very last words of the whole of Matthew's gospel, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And again, that shouldn't surprise us. Right back at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph is having his panic that Mary, who is betrothed to, has somehow been unfaithful to him, is now lying about some archangel. For goodness sake, Mary, who's come and told her she's going to have a baby. Just tell me the truth. Look, we'll do it all quietly, says Joseph. I'll, you know, we won't make a public shaming of you. And then the archangel has to come to Joseph and say, she's right. And what this angel says to Joseph is this. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to call him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their, from their sins and all this will take place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Right at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. He is going to be God with us. And then the last words of Matthew's Gospel, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Christians don't worship a long-dead religious example, icon, teacher, philosopher. Christians don't simply look back to somebody who taught remarkable things, did astonishing things, lived a hugely moral life. Actually, we look back back to somebody to whom we look to now because he's with us now. This is the one who defeated death, who is alive today and is with us today. The rightful king isn't just king in some either other dimension or some theoretical sense or king in some past history. This is the one who is king now, with us now, present, God with us, Emmanuel. And then thirdly, which we can almost miss in the archangel's words to Joseph, this is God with us. Now Matthew's beautifully subtle in the way he does this. 
Matthew is a beautiful and wonderful writer. We mustn't miss this about the gospel writers. They write their gospels not just as a sort of, you know, knee-jerk splurging of memories. This is beautifully controlled, deliberate writing. All four of the gospel writers do this. And what you find in Matthew's gospel is that he keeps throwing in hints, moments of revelation, building up a case. It's like reading one of the, the great detective novels, where when you look back on the book as a whole, you realize that the, the clues were there all along, that the case has been building. I mean, it, you, you know, if you watch one of those TV um, sort of murder mysteries, or you read one of the great sort of uh, mystery novels, what you don't find is them pulling a rabbit out of the hat at the end, and you're thinking, huh? I mean, that, that just ruins everything that's gone before. The great ones are the ones where you go, of course, it was there all along. It was staring me in the face, all those clues. And it makes you just want to go and read it again or watch it again because it was all there all the way through and then it's revealed. Matthew's gospel is just like that. Right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he tells you stuff that if you're new to Jesus, you're not ready to hear. I mean, it's there, it's really clear, it's plain as the, you know, the nose on the end of your face, but you can't quite hear it. It's too stark, it's too ridiculous. We hear that this is the one who's meant to be God with us. We hear that this is the one that even the stars have proclaimed. This is the one who's there to even usurp King Herod and maybe even the emperor. But then Matthew just stars it back a bit. and We get hints and moments and words and actions. And time and time again, if we've got the eyes to see and the ears to hear, there's Matthew going, don't miss it. Don't miss who this Jesus is. This is God come to be with us. This is God, the rightful king, come to take his throne. This is God, the rightful king, come to be with us forever. And right at the end of his gospel, Matthew takes us up on a mountain. That's the place where people meet God in the Old Testament. That's the place where the transfiguration happens. Matthew shows us Jesus saying to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Well, they were good Jewish boys. They were good Jewish girls. They knew their stuff. They knew what it was to follow God. And they knew there was only one God. And they knew that their one God had authority. And Jesus was saying, I have authority over heaven and on earth. And then he says to them these words, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jewish people in those times would have been quite familiar with putting together the Father and the Spirit. We've got plenty of other writings from those days which would talk about the Father, the Father of all people, the creator of all things, the, the king of the universe, the one God, and they would talk about his Spirit. The Spirit of God appears at various points in the Old Testament. He, he fills key people at key times. For example, King David is filled with the Spirit of God at various moments that he needed God's presence with him. They were quite familiar with those words. And in fact, if you were baptizing a proselyte, a Gentile who was becoming a Jew, it wasn't entirely unheard of, so I'm told, to effectively baptize them, send them through the water in the name of the Father. And there is comment about the Spirit too. Jesus, though, throws in this astonishing moment and of the Son. This is a moment of astonishing um, significance. Here is Jesus on the mountaintop, claiming to have all the authority, claiming to be the one who's going to be with them forever, putting himself, inserting himself right there in the midst of the heart of God, baptizing in the name of the Father and of me and of the Spirit. This is God come to be with us. 
That's the who at the heart of the Christian faith. And the who leads to the why. Why do we live the lives that we're called to live? Well, we live because we have this astonishing gospel, which just literally means good news. The good news that there is a king of the universe. It isn't out of control. It isn't just pure chaos. It isn't somehow just left to slip down into the depths. There is a beating heart of love for you, right at the heart of this universe. And this beating heart of love has a face, the face of Jesus Christ, the one who's come to be with us and to be for us and to be alongside us. And if that's true, if this good news is true, then of course we ourselves want to follow this Jesus who's loved us that much and has given everything for us. And of course, if I want to follow him, unless I'm being thoroughly selfish, unless I'm being thoroughly self-centered, well, of course I want to call other people to be his disciples too. Of course I do. I either don't really believe it's true, or I wouldn't want to keep it to myself. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, if he's the king of the universe, if he's the one who's loved me enough to die for me, if he's risen to new life and with me today by his spirit, then I want to be his disciple and of course, I want others to know him too. Not because I'm some sort of religious bigot. Not because somehow everybody's got to be in my club. Not because somehow I need that self-satisfaction of telling everybody else they're wrong. Actually, simply because it's really good news and I'd love other people to know it too. It makes logical, emotional sense. And as a why, it's a far greater dose of rocket fuel than the guilt of simply, here's a rule, and you are to follow it, or else you're a big failure. I want others to know the good news of the Jesus who lived and died and rose again for me. I want to call them to be his disciples. I want to teach them and tell them the things that Jesus taught and told me. And then we want to baptize them. Because to be baptized is to be seen to belong to God's big family his worldwide family, his down-through-history family. Throughout Scripture and down-through-history, baptism is the one single physical mark of belonging. It simply says, you belong. You're part of God's family. You're loved by God. Now, love him back. Love his people. Care for this beautiful world he's given you as a gift. We're going to come to communion. And as we share bread and wine or as some of us come for a, a blessing if we're not uh, in a place to receive. As we do that, it's a perfect moment to say, whether for the first time or for the umpteenth time, Jesus, I do believe you're who you claim to be. I do want to be your disciple. Now give me grace and courage to tell other people too, to call other people to be your disciples to tell them that good news that fills me. And one final word. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Being a Christian is not about not having doubts. Following Jesus as a disciple is not about having it all taped down. In some ways, actually, the longer you go on as a follower of Jesus, the bigger the questions that raise because you understand more and more about God's world. You want to know more and more. 
But do you notice Jesus doesn't wait for them to stop having doubts before he says to them, so go and tell others. And in fact, what they discovered was that as they went and told others the good news of Jesus, they began to understand more and more. They began to get more and more answers to their questions. They began to be able to tell others more and more of his love in them. So we're going to pause for a moment of stillness. Let's think on what we've heard. And then we're going to come very simply and quietly to receive.